1: As Christians, we believe the Bible. It's the basis of everything. Our trust in God is true. It is firm. But only because of what we have learned about Him in the Bible. What is it that we trust about Him? The Bible tells us that too. But the Bible can't be believed or taken or trusted piecemeal like a buffet. Take what you like and leave what you don't. Because when we talk about belief, it's a matter of believing or not. Believing all of it or not. Perhaps a more appropriate analogy would be thinking that some dishes at a buffet are poisoned and not fit for eating while others are fine. I believe in that case you would throw everything out and not take your chances. Why would you trust any of it? And like a building that is structurally unsound because of one wrong choice among thousands of correct choices, once you say that any part of Scripture is outdated, it's irrelevant or just flat out wrong, then you challenge the integrity of the whole. It is a crack in the dam that eventually will make the whole thing crumble." There's no other issue that is neglected and thrown out, resulting in the compromise of the whole of Scripture, more than the issue of women's roles. Today we look at one of the clear passages on this topic as we continue our series on order in the church. We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33b through 35. Turn there with me. I'll read that for you. 1 Corinthians 14 the second part of verse 33 through verse 35 As in all the churches of the saints the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the Lord the law also says if they desire to learn anything let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church This morning, I want to give you five facets of Paul's teaching on women in the church. And this is within the context of order in the church and the wider context of spiritual gifts. The first facet of Paul's teaching on women in the church is the common precedent. The common precedent. We see this in verse 33b where he says, As in all the churches of the saints... There is debate as to whether this phrase belongs in verse 33 or in verse 34. If the former, then Paul would be appealing to the Corinthians to behave like all the other churches are behaving in regard to the orderly use of the gift of prophecy. If it belongs in verse 34, then it refers to Paul's teaching on women in the church. As a side note, keep in mind that chapter and verse numbers were not added until later. In other words, Paul did not write this letter and stop every sentence and say, verse 2, verse 3. I think I'm going to change the topic. Let's go to chapter 5 now. He just wrote a letter. He didn't break it down into numbered sections. There are different phases of the insertion of chapters, then verses throughout history. Chapters came first, as did the sectioning of the Old Testament before the New Testament. Suffice it to say, without going into all the details, that they were added 1,000 to 1,500 years after the last book of the Bible was written. Now, this was done for convenience of study and reference. We're thankful someone did this, so that or multiple did the, people did this, actually so that there is a universal system that extends through all versions, all publishing sizes and languages, whereas page numbers, for example, simply wouldn't work. Even if you had the same version in English, if you had a pocket Bible and had a large print Bible, I couldn't just say, let's refer to page 108. It would be completely different. You might not have a page 108, depending on what your Bible is. That being said the verse numbers are not inspired. They are not the inspired Word of God, though there are only a handful, if even that, of places where there is disagreement on the accepted location of the breaks. Now, whether God intended this verse, this end of this verse, to refer to prophecy or women speaking in the church, the principle is clear and can be applied to both, if not all that we've looked at. And here's the principle. All the churches of that time had corporate worship that aligned with the teachings and character of God. This is in no way a call for us today to accept any trend or movement that's going on in the church or even even evangelicalism. The point is that biblical churches, which we can assume the early church was as Christianity was just in its infancy and not yet prone to various trends, were so ordered that they reflect the character of God. They worship in a way that conforms to the object of that worship. This is not talking about philosophy of ministry. This is not talking about, oh, we do one more song, which happens to be a hymn after the Scripture reading. That's not what we're talking about. We're looking at general principles of order here, but other general principles could be use the Bible, let people teach, show up, things like that. Not the specifics of who's teaching or how they teach or what passage they teach. And so we know that biblical churches will conform to these major principles of how churches are to worship corporately. And so Paul is urging the Corinthian church to emulate the other churches in existence at that time in their orderly reverence during their corporate gatherings. We know that Paul would never ask anyone to follow the status quo simply for the sake of conformity. But if that status quo honors God, then get in line. Fall in line. The reality is that if there was any other church at that time, that engaged in confusion and chaotic worship, then they too, like the Corinthians, would be out of step with God and misaligned with his character and misaligned with the other churches. But more to the point, what is Paul teaching? That needs to be in step with everyone else because it sticks with the the desires of God in worship. This leads us to our second facet of Paul's teaching on women in the church, the complacent participation. The complacent participation. Look at the beginning of verse 34 again. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. The issue addressed here and elsewhere in the New Testament rubs people the wrong way. That's fine to a degree. The problem comes when we disagree with it and decide to completely ignore it, especially when you don't fully understand it. There are a lot of exegetical gymnastics people go through to explain away this verse. and There are three that are the most prominent among pastors and even commentators. They are one, that Paul is quoting a common Corinthian saying. Second, that he is teaching specifically on the relationship between a husband and wife, And so it would not apply to all situations and circumstances. And thirdly, some just say, well, this isn't in the original Greek. Well, we can disregard the third because that's simply not true. And even if the first two are true, the clear statement that Paul makes without any caveats, no exceptions, it's very straightforward, tells us that this is a truth that needs to be followed. Frankly, As most, if not all of you, have experienced to some degree on certain passages, it's quite disheartening how far Christians or self-proclaimed Christians will go to explain this verse away. The problem is that they're most likely practicing what we call eisegesis, the practice of reading into a text rather than the proper exegesis, reading out of the text or letting the text speak for itself. In other words, in eisegesis, they're trying to accommodate those who are potentially offended by this, and they let that determine their interpretation of God's Word. Rather than coming with a blank slate, perhaps even saying, I think it means this, but as they study the Greek, as they study the context, they realize, oh, that's not what it means, but that's what I'm going to believe, even though it disagrees with what I thought, what I believe, how I feel, because you have to let God speak for Himself through His Word. Eisegesis is approaching the verse with a preconceived idea or bias, which we all do, but then pushing that idea, that bias, into the verse and making God's Word align with what they want or what they believe. They will interpret that verse so as to come to the conclusion that, to be honest, they've already arrived at before even opening their Bibles. As a side note to this side note, this is the danger of topical preaching. To take all these verses to support the topic that you want to preach, oftentimes, Well meaning pastors do this because they think a a verse means something. And because they're going topical and they're using 10, 15 verses, they don't have time in a week or a month even to study in depth all those verses. So they say, Well, I know what this means. It's pretty clear. And they don't look at the Greek. They don't look at the Hebrew. They don't look at the immediate context, the wider context, how Paul or Peter or whoever uses that word in other books that they have written. And then they say, well, this verse is appropriate for our topic on prayer and fasting. And that's not what the verse is talking about at all. So we need to be careful. Even in our own study of the word, though you may not be going deep, though you may not know foreign languages, though you may not be consulting a, a study Bible or a commentary, you need to be careful that you are not eisegeting, forcing something to say something that you want it to say just because it doesn't sit well with you or even because you can't understand it. Eisegesis is very a very common practice today. That results in everything from lesbian pastors to the prosperity gospel. They all use Scripture, but they're not using the Scriptures based on what they actually mean. This is the danger of mixing culture and Bible interpretation. This is the danger of mixing feelings and Bible interpretation. The principle we're studying today is straightforward and supported elsewhere in Scripture, he uses the word silent here. It's the same word in the Greek that he used in verse 28 of tongue speakers keeping silent if there's no interpreter. That means don't speak in tongues at all. The same word we saw in verse 30 of the prophet who is to sit down and stop speaking when another prophet speaks. In both cases, we understand full well that they are not just to speak in a lower tone or keep silent for a few seconds and then interrupt. They are to keep silent. We also understand that this is in regard to speech within the context of corporate worship. So that which is orderly and fitting, it doesn't mean women cannot sing with others or sneeze or clear their throat or have a conversation before or after, what have you. The meaning here is clear when we look at the context. The wider context is that they are not to use their spiritual gifts where all attention would be on them, speaking in tongues, prophesying, teaching. And in the narrower context of order and corporate worship, they were not to interrupt. They were not to interject and ask questions as some believe was happening back then. Although we wouldn't see this uh, today because of the structure of our churches, at least in North America, are different. There were house churches back then. And those house churches, the, the congregation, were a lot smaller than the average church in America, which I believe is around 100, 150. And so sometimes maybe the women would not be able to distinguish between sitting in their li- living room and talking with their kids and their friends versus sitting in that same seat and they're supposed to listen to the preacher or the prophet or the one speaking in tongues. And so they would talk over other people, they would interrupt and ask questions. We can see from the context also in other verses, this is also talking about leadership, which we'll get to in a minute. But regardless of their specific context, Paul is very clear and straightforward in this verse and another verse we'll look at in a moment. So, no teaching, no prophesying, no speaking in tongues, no verbal communication in a leadership role. Really any sort of speaking out in corporate or public worship, the verse is absolute, it is clear. There are no if this is in your home. But when this happens, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. It is very straightforward forward. And so regardless of the immediate context, regardless of what we may think and say this is outdated, this doesn't apply to us, whatever it is, we can't add to this verse. There's no extra explanations or conditions that we can exegete. So we take it at face value. Again, it's not that women cannot participate in corporate worship. They should, if they are believers, they must. They add value to the congregation. And as with every Christian, the congregation adds value to them. But there are rules that need to be followed. We also see this in First Timothy 2. I'd like you to turn there. First Timothy 2, verses 11 through 12. First Timothy chapter 2. Verses 11 through 12 says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, straightforward. And when we look at the next verse in First Timothy 2, we know that this is not merely cultural for Paul's day. It's not limited to a certain time frame because he goes back all the way to the beginning of time and bases it on God's created order in verse 13, for, in other words, explaining what he just said, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And that brings us to our next point, our third facet of Paul's teaching on women in the church, the creation pattern. The second part of verse 34 says, but they are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Paul goes back and refers to the Old Testament law. When he uses this term, he is not referring to dietary laws or laws of purity that Christ clearly taught no longer apply to us. But law here is a ref- reference to God's will and the Word of God as a whole. And as we saw in verse thirteen in First, Timoth- of First Timothy two. What the law says is that according to God's created order as designed by him before creation, Adam, or man, was created first, and Eve, woman, out of man. On that basis, men were to lead in the home, in the marriage, and in the church. Based on this Old Testament principle, we know that women were not allowed to speak in Jewish synagogues, and for the same reason... Paul writes what he writes here in 1 Corinthians. In the early church, there would have been a consensus among believers that this practice, this custom was correct and biblical. They would have known exactly what he was referring to when he referred to the law, the creation order. It was more integrated into their society of just understanding and going back to the reality of God's creation of man and woman, something that's lost in modern cultures today. Also, when Paul says that women are to subject themselves, he's talking about the subordination in general that we saw in 1 Corinthians 11. All of this is an encouraging reminder of God's unchanging nature, which rolls into His unchanging will, as revealed in the Word of God. There is so much volatility today in the beliefs and convictions of our culture, It's hard to keep up. There are certain phrases and things uh, that that I was told growing up by culture was a good thing. People would sing about this. Specifically, blacks would sing about this, rap about this, and that same phrase today is considered racist. 30 years ago, it was the cure for racism. Racism don't see color, and now it is racist. I'm not making a political statement. I'm simply saying that things change. Views change about gender. Views change about intimacy, about finances, about the rich and the poor. Culture is constantly changing. It is volatile. What was praised yesterday is offensive today. What was offensive last year will be praised tomorrow. But God never changes. He and His Word are our solid rock. Can you imagine if He changed as much as society did? If generation to generation the way of salvation changed? Well, yeah, before it was Christ because they were all living at at the same time He was, but now it's based on your works. How could you keep up? How could you preach? How could you worship? How could you baptize? And even if you did, how would you know what was right today? How would you know this is the way to God today? How would you know it's not outdated? To be raised by parents who are saved one way, but now you're saved another way. Because now it's wrong. We've learned. We're progressive. We're right now. God doesn't change. That is encouraging. That is encouraging. The creation pattern is a blessing against the grain of today's society. Absolutely. At least for now. Who knows what tomorrow brings? Things always go full circle, don't they? Whether in morality, whether in trends, whether in fashion, we go to such an extreme, even within the church, then we all, all of a sudden pop back to what once was because we're frustrated with how far things have gone. Maybe not in society and culture, but we see this in politics. How does someone like Trump become president with his followers who is so extreme because we've gone extreme in the other way? And most of us would be surprised if there's anyone in the middle ever in the White House again you're either going to be extremely progressive or extremely conservative in your politics because the pendulum is just going to swing further and further and further to either side. So we praise God. We praise God for His pattern established with no need to question, no need to reinterpret, no need to search anew. Who's the new prophet? Who's the next Messiah? People have tried Muhammad, Joseph Smith, various leaders of Christian cults, but they have failed. They have died. People have mourned the loss, and yet Jesus was risen. He doesn't change. And we look all the way back to creation, to how we are to live in the church today in 2022. The world rolls its eyes. The world says, are you kidding? Keep up. We say, praise God. Because when it comes to it, you out there don't even know what you believe. And when you do, you're afraid to say it too loudly because you know it might change tomorrow. God and His Word do not change. And man, do we see quite the friction between an unchanging God and creation pattern and society's view of women today. And you know what the worst part of society's view of women today? Is it's demeaning. Why? Because they read this and say, see, you Christians, you just want them to shut up and stay home, which couldn't be further from the truth. It's demeaning because they interpret the Scriptures, not based on what they think it says, but based on what will look, make us look the worst, and then sometimes convince women in the church, see, this is, you know, this is what your pastor believes. You know, this is what your dad and husband believe. Why are you wearing shoes? You should be barefoot. Where do you see that in Scripture? It's in the Old Testament before shoes existed. That's all. That's it right? You've heard these things. You've heard these accusations about our views of women. They're simply not true. So don't believe society and definitely don't believe society's misinterpretation of God's truth. Let's move on. The fourth facet of Paul's teaching on women in the church, the confidential pondering. Verse 35 in the beginning says, if they desire to learn anything, Let them ask their own husbands at home. This really bothers our culture, doesn't it? That women need to ask men anything. It really bothers them. But it goes back to God's pattern of marriage. You see, he's continuing his instruction regarding women in the church. We have indication here that questions could and would be asked of the preacher or prophet or leader of the corporate worship. They would be interrupted and people would ask questions. Part of the issue at hand was that women would do this interrupting or challenging a prophecy or teaching. Again, we're still in the context of a church setting. Questions and interruptions are acceptable in conversations and small group settings, but not during a worship service for anyone, male male, male or female, or even a prophet, as we saw. Rather than do that, Paul says they are to ask their husbands at home. This is also within the pattern of men and women in the church in that men are to lead the women. We understand that biblical leadership goes beyond social, emotional, and financial. The men were to lead their wives spiritually. Inherent in this call for women to ask their husband and for the husbands to lead is the need for husbands to be spiritual leaders to be well-taught, to be studying the Word of God. Part of the problem then and now was that men were not leading. They weren't leading their wives, which made matters worse. For the unmarried, Paul rightly assumes in their culture that, there would, that the woman would have fathers, possibly brothers in their lives who were believers, who were studying the Word, Although not necessarily the case today, where every woman in the church has a spiritually mature family member to learn from, the main point is still the same. Ask in private of someone else, not in the middle of the sermon or worship. And so Paul has now mentioned two different categories of speaking. The speaking in the form of teaching or leadership within the church, and the speaking in terms of interrupting the teaching or leadership within the church. And keep in mind that the questions would mostly be about spiritual matters. That's a good thing, to have questions about spiritual things. But there's a time and a place, and Paul is saying corporate worship is neither. Then at the end of verse 35, Paul closes the section and the topic by bringing us back full circle in the conflicting practice. We've seen the common precedent... Do as all the churches, the complacent participation. Women are to participate in worship, but in a way that follows God's teaching. The creation pattern explains why, all the way back to Adam and Eve. The confidential pondering, ask of your husbands. And finally, the conflicting practice. And he really summarizes and repeats the same thing, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Improper. Means shameful, disgraceful, unbecoming, indecent. It is simply putting it within the same category of a lack of modesty, inconsistent with biblical standards of modesty. We sometimes usually talk about being modest in reference to how people dress. This is more than an issue of causing others to stumble and bringing shame upon yourself. For the married, it's an issue of bringing shame to her husband, the same as if you dress inappropriately. For the unmarried, bringing shame to her father. Questions such as, is this how I raised you? Come to mind that we've probably all faced or have said at some point or another. We live in a world where anything goes, where everything goes independence and self-care are more important than respecting others and sacrifice. I see so often now these viral videos of people basically refusing to do their jobs at work and saying, well, I'm not going to give in to the boss, the man, the, and all these comments like, yeah, you go, right? They make billions of dollars. Why should you listen to them? Because they pay you to do that. You chose to have that job. You clocked in that morning to say you would do that. It's mind boggling that people are praising employees for slacking on the job or not doing their job properly or even stealing from their boss because mental gymnastics here Jeff Bezos is a billionaire what? It's crazy. Everything goes. But we have already seen that Paul appeals to God's Word, which means he appeals to God himself. He appeals to God's character. He appeals to God's will. And I would say that is definitely a more noble pursuit Than social acceptance or even self respect, wouldn't you? I would go so far as to say for myself that following God's word is more important to me and more noble than my own happiness, the happiness of my children, and even being liked by you, my flock. Well, we know that's hypothetical because it doesn't work that way if you're a true believer and you obey God through thick and thin to every single letter jot and tittle you will find joy you will be happy your children will be happy you will be respected by the people that matter and so we've seen five facets of Paul's teaching on women in the church the common precedent the complacent participation the creation pattern, the confidential pondering, and the conflicting practice. So what? What do you do with all of this? I want to give you two closing practical points. The first is accept your role with joy. Man or woman, married or unmarried, accept your role and live it out with an understanding of why things are the way they are not clenching your teeth, grin and bear it, but doing it with joy. Say, I do it, but I don't have joy. So how do you do it with joy? It comes down to worshiping God, having a high view of God. High is a a relative term, right? That guy, that basketball player, jumps really high, higher than anyone else on the team, Compared to the uh, cruising altitude of a 747, right? It's relative. And when I talk about it being relative here, when I say high view of God, I mean higher view of God than of yourself, of your own comfort, of your own feelings. You say, what, well, I'm just supposed to suffer? No, because when you have a true biblical high view of God as a true believer, then the joy and the peace and the gratitude and the contentedness and the satisfaction will all come into place. We fight submitting to God in every aspect of our lives because we fear being unhappy. And the irony is that that is the solution to your dissatisfaction and your lack of happiness. We need to value God's way more than society's norms, even if those norms have been around since you've been born. This also means that men accept their role and step up. There are always marriages where the wife is more spiritually mature than their husband, and that's okay. you can still lead. You can still submit. You don't have to know more to be a leader. But this can also be aided by cultivating this as the more spiritually mature wife. So how do I do that? In the same way, you would respect and encourage a newly hired manager who is over you but has less experience than you. You would still submit. You would still understand they're the boss. But you would help them and cultivate that leadership. Show them what they're supposed to do. Don't talk down about them to your coworkers who are complaining. Encourage maturity in your husband. Single guys and single girls, these norms do not begin at marriage, they begin at salvation. You have no wife to lead. You have no husband to submit to. But you all have people to lead and influence. Single man or single woman, you all have people you are to submit to. And the bigger picture of having a high view of God and rejecting society's pressure upon your life, you don't just do all these things and enjoy what society has to offer and say, well, then when I get married, then I'll fall in line. Because you're already saved. These things start at salvation. You don't say, well, I'm going to start living this way. I'm going to start giving to the church. I'm going to start being sacrificial. When I get married to be a good example to her, and then when I have kids, we really need to be a good example to the kids. That's not why you do these things. You do these things to honor God. It starts now. It start, should have started years ago. So accept your role with joy. Secondly, and this is bigger. This is how you do the first one. Accept God's Word with joy. Again, this is not just reading it. I don't like it. I'm going to fight it. Um, I'm joyful. No, but, but truly being joyful, which comes from the Lord. Submit, You pray. Confess, Lord, I have a problem with your word. I have a problem with this, Lord. I feel like you have gifted me in preaching and teaching, and I have a problem with this. Confess that to the Lord. With respect, we can tell God that. He wants us to tell Him those things. He knows already. He just doesn't want you to say, Fist up, how dare you, Lord? But to humbly ask for help. Where do we get off? Where do we get off thinking we know better than the one who created us? To say that he's outdated or have the audacity to alter his words. That doesn't mean just changing the literal words. But reading the words and say, you know what this really means? Even the logic of the depraved tells you that the created submits to the creator. You go to some, even a child, or go to CES in Las Vegas, and you meet the inventor of some new technology. You don't go to the technology and say what do you want to do. You go to the creator and say what does it do? What did you program this to do? And when it doesn't, the guy gets fired or goes back to the lab and say we need to reprogram. Logic tells you the created submits to the creator. The created does not force the creator to bend to his will. We all know or can at least imagine where our world is headed when people think something's factually incorrect simply because they don't like it. Facts are altered because people don't like it. And society is communal enough, varied enough, and big enough that no matter how outrageous your view is, you will find others that agree with you. And then a movement begins, and then pressure pressure on our politicians, pressure on our teachers. Pressure on the church. What happens when something that is factually a fact, truth, becomes incorrect in society because they don't like it on the small scale? You get, as I mentioned in my illustration just a minute ago, lazy workers, you get bad service, you get cheap products. On the large scale, you get an increase in crime, murders, and wars. And that's just human to human. Human to God? Well, just take a look around. Google the headline from 40 years ago. And then just go to CNN.com and try to keep up with the dozens of headlines of murder, catastrophe, non binary. The world will come to a stop when one child went missing in the nation. Now you can't even keep up, it's not even in the news. It's too much. It's gotten to the point where news won't even report it because it's boring now. It's happened so often. It's not a moneymaker. It doesn't sell commercials. The danger of ignoring passages like this is not found merely in the challenge to the authority of Scripture. You also dishonor God by challenging His lordship And placing your own will, whether influenced by society or not, above His. We are the salt of the earth, which in part means we preserve the earth. We can only do so much. It's going downhill fast, but it would be going downhill faster were it not for Christians and their beliefs. Salting, preserving. The world puts their will above God's because they have to. It is part of the shackling unto depravity. They can't put God's will above themselves. It is impossible for them. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't do it. And so we're salt of the earth. So what happens when we start putting our wills above God's? the only people doing that. Millions of us, to be sure. But we're the only ones doing it, and many of them have reversed this. And so when you start taking a sledgehammer to the pillars, well, no wonder the thing is falling apart. And that's not even the worst of it. Society is going to burn. God's going to destroy it. Did you know that what is more important than the destiny of our world for you is your personal, one individual relationship with God? When you have the opportunity and the ability by God's grace and His Spirit to honor and glorify Him, that's what you must do. And the way you do it is first and foremost by submitting to his word, to all of it. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for your steadfastness that you do not change, knowing even before you created it, that society, mankind, would change drastically from generation to generation, and the curve is just spiking up. Lord, help us to stand fast, not just on this issue, but on all issues, knowing that it is one of many that are holding all of this together. For those of us who find this challenging, Or any other passage of Scripture that we want to disregard it, we want to question the authority of your word in just that area. I pray that you would help us to repent, help us to understand your goodness in all of these things, help us to not buy into society's teaching that we are doing this against our will, that somehow. God or the pastors or our families or are holding us back, twisting our arms. But help us to rejoice because although we may not fully understand it, we do to some degree know and understand your will and your pattern, and it is good. It is so good. Guard us against the influence and the, the pushing of the conformity in our lives of society and culture which frankly is so hard to keep up. Help us not ignore it either that we would drastically, proactively be salt and light to this world that so desperately needs it not trying to change their views but to convert their souls and may we be bold in evangelism to that end. Use us, Father, for your glory. The short time that we have on this earth, I pray that we wouldn't jeopardize it all because we don't like one verse. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing as we transition to a time of communion